I want to begin this morning with a warning. Fall in love with Jesus. Take joy in His mercies. Commit your life to Him. Get excited about following the Lord. And at some point, you'll have a supposed brother or sister, perhaps a fellow churchgoer, put their arm on your shoulder and whisper in your ear, Now let's settle down and not get too spiritual, for we all need to remember that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That will happen to you if it hasn't already. And when that happens, you just say no. For Colossians 3 and 4 refutes that idea. It proves that a true heavenly mindset elevates every area of our life on earth. I like what C.S. Lewis once wrote, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. You see, the truth is, the more heavenly-minded you really are, the more earthly good you'll do. This is what Paul teaches us here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. See, on the Christian's compass, true north are always the ways and will of God. Paul says, don't be shallow, don't be earthbound in your thinking. Set your mind, direct your thoughts, focus your desires Godward. If Jesus brought you from spiritual death to life, then keep looking upwards. You have access to the right hand of God. His blessings are available to you. Don't let worldly pleasures or temporal pursuits cheat you out of the highest and holiest and heaviest joys. Here's another C.S. Lewis quote. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like the ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Why are we settling For fancies that tickle our flesh when Jesus can bring satisfaction to our very souls. Well, he says in verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Realize the Christian life is a hidden life. This is a profound truth that I'm afraid many Christians themselves overlook. The Christian life is a hidden life. You know, the world looks at a believer's life and doesn't get us. We don't make sense. They scratch their head and they begin to scoff. Oh, she's committed herself completely to Christ. She sacrificed for His sake. And what does she have to show for it? And to a degree, the world is right. For our God is invisible. Our home is over the horizon, out of sight, off the map. Our greatest rewards are future. 
Our Savior is seen only with eyes of faith. Our Helper, the Holy Spirit, is like the wind. He's ethereal rather than tangible. He's sensed rather than seen. Our treasure is buried in our hearts. Our source of joy and love and power and peace is accessed from the inside out rather than from the outside. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, one day the Pharisees, they asked Jesus, You talk so much about the kingdom of God. Where is it? Jesus answered them, The kingdom does not come with observation or with outward show. Nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. You see, a Christian is like an iceberg. The largest part of who we are and what we have is out of sight, below the surface. All the current world sees of our life is the tip of the iceberg. That's why we're laughed at and ridiculed and often misinterpreted. We've given our all to a kingdom other people can't see. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. But notice verse 4. But when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Oh, the world may be mocking us now, but one day every follower of Jesus is going to get the last laugh. When Jesus comes again, He'll do so visibly and tangibly so that the whole world will stand in awe. With jaws dropped and with tongues tied, everyone will bow in fear of His majesty and might. And suddenly, it'll come into focus for your friends and for your family that your life, what people thought of as your strange devotion, will suddenly be clearly explained for you will be standing there with Christ, clothed with His majesty. In that moment, the hidden life will become the envied life. I once read of an avid duck hunter named Dean Gooden. When Dean died, his friends placed his ashes in a pair of two-foot-long mallard decoys. His buddy made a statement, He has a good place here. He goes hunting with me. I even put bows on him at Christmas. Well, that's pretty pathetic. And it proves to me that folks who live only for this life end up a quack. (laughs) Christians live for eternity. It's only after you become heavenly minded that you begin to grasp what's of value here below. And then he says in verse 5, Therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth. After his conversion to Christ, Paul was like a club under new leadership. And it was time he cleared up his membership roles. So he goes down the list that was his life. Every ungodly attitude or habit or activity that had defined him. And he now denies it enrollment in the life that he lives in Christ. And this is what we need to do. We need to clean up our membership roles, our character role, our attitude role. We need to get rid of all our members that don't follow Christ. And the first on the list, notice, is fornication, which is sex outside of marriage. 
The Greek term here is pornea, from which we get the word pornography. But the Greeks used it as a catch-all phrase for all kinds of illicit sex. Not only pornography, but incest, and adultery, and homosexuality, and shacking up, and hooking up, and friends with benefits, and palamorous arrangements, all kinds of things. All sex outside of heterosexual marriage is fornication. The buzzword in today's society is safe sex. People think if it's safe sex, it's okay. But God's Word says, save sex. For God designed human sexuality for a husband and a wife. Sex before or outside of marriage isn't blessed by God. It might seem right to you, but trust me, God disapproves. Often I hear couples, they justify living together by saying they just want to take a test drive before they buy. Yet who wants to be somebody's test drive? I don't. You see, the secret sauce of marriage is love. An unreserved, a committed, a lifelong love. The idea that I'm with you despite our problems and to work out our problems rather than to just discover our problems, to me, changes everything. You can't test drive commitment. You're either committed or you're not. Too many test drives end up demolition derbies. That's what happens. To have a solid marriage, you need to get your instructions from above. And God says, put to death not only fornication, but uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you know that craving somebody else's stuff is considered by God a form of idolatry? You know, we're all worshipers at heart. And if we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. We can even turn items into idols. He continues, he said, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. We were on a death march to hell. But in Christ, we broke ranks. We now marching to a different drummer. While on earth, we're getting in step with heaven. We're to put to death our sinful members. And we're to put off certain attitudes, verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. And in the next verses, Paul is going to teach us to dress for success. Spiritually speaking, that is. Now, I'm not sure you've noticed, but I'm not much of a clothes horse. In fact, I still have shirts that were bought when Ronald Reagan was president. (laughs) And every so often, one of these shirts that I love so dearly will just disappear from my closet. (laughs) Poof! Just instantly vanish. Some of my favorite, most comfortable shirts. I go in and I look around and they're gone. It's a mystery. Well, unlike the Kathy spirit, (laughs) the Holy Spirit doesn't just clean out your closet for you. No, He expects you to play a part. You see, the Spirit makes us a new person in Christ, but then we have choices to make. We have to develop a new wardrobe. There are some attitudes we put off, 
And then there's some attitudes we put on. And he starts out here with what we need to discard. He says, first, anger. The Greek word here implies a simmering, stewing, a festering kind of anger that leads to further sin. You need to get rid of that anger. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Second on the list of off attitudes is wrath. The word is thumos, or what we get our word thermos. It's a hot, volcanic anger. If you have an explosive temper, you need to learn to diffuse it and quick. You need to put it off. As well as malice, that is taking pleasure in someone else's misfortune. Then blasphemy, contempt for God or the things of God. Filthy language of your mouth, he says. Any demeaning or defiling verbiage, put that away. Has no place in a Christian's life. And then he says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. Whenever I think of lying in church, I recall the couple in Acts chapter 5 that dropped dead when they lied to Peter in the Holy Spirit. They tried to appear more spiritual than they really were. And God dealt with their hypocrisy so severely because he knew that there could be no meaningful fellowship in the church without honesty. That's why that same kind of atmosphere is needed among us today. He says, do not lie, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. But putting off is only half the challenge. For verse 10 tells us that we should also put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Again, here's how you live the Christian life. You put off and you put on. Now, Colossians 2 teaches us that spiritually, in the inner person, we are complete in Christ. We have all we need from God in Christ Jesus. But our outer man, it still has some issues, doesn't it? Residual habits from our past, lingering tendencies, formerly learned reactions can betray our identity in Christ. Thus, it's our job to put off and put on. We need to reprogram our thoughts and develop new patterns. I've got to learn to see myself in Christ and live accordingly. One year, my son Mac, he played soccer, and on his team were two children with the same name, Casey. One Casey was a male, and the other Casey was a little girl. Well, in their first game, the coach kept barking out instructions to Casey. But there was great confusion. Which Casey did he mean? It didn't take long for the coach to solve the problem. He started shouting, Pass it, Casey boy. Clear it, Casey girl. The smart coach differentiated the two Casey's by calling out Casey boy or Casey girl. And this is how you win the Christian life. I've got to differentiate between the new me and the old me. When temptation raises its ugly head and the world calls for the old me, I've got to remember, I'm not Sandy Old. I'm now Sandy New. Sandy Old was crucified with Christ. Sandy New is now transformed. And you see, it's when I officialize that identity in my mind that I will continually forsake the old and sync up with the new. And so we're told in verse 11... In Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, 
circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Remember the false teachers in Colossae, they saw themselves as spiritual elites. Supposedly they had a special knowledge or gnosis that common folk lacked. But Paul assures the Colossians that in Christ there is no such thing as spiritual exclusivity. In Christ, all distinctions, racial and cultural and social, are abolished. As Christians, we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is level ground at the foot of the cross. We are of all equal value before Christ. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Notice Paul calls all believers the elect of God. Elect means chosen or picked out. See, you don't rise to an elite level with God. There's no knowledge to learn or wisdom to develop or deed to do or secret society to join. No, if you are in Christ, God considers you special, holy and beloved, in fact. God has no elite, just the elect. And again, since you are the elect of God, you need to dress like it. He says, put on tender mercies. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. We discussed the attitudes to put off. Now here are some attitudes to put on. Did you know that Christianity has a dress code? That's right. God cares about what you wear to church. I hope you don't think Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is one of those come-as-you-are places. Oh, my. You know, as a child, my parents told me that God deserves my very best. And so when I went to church, they put me in a little white dress shirt that you didn't dare get dirty, a stiff collar that felt like a hangman's noose, a choking little tie, itchy dress pants, and rigid shoes designed by the devil himself. I'm sure of it. It made a young boy not want to go to church. Well, I still believe that a Christian should wear his best to church. But what God considers best has nothing to do with the clothes that you wear. Nothing to do with it. God cares about our attitudes. When we come to church, he wants us to dress up in our very best disposition, in our character, in our conduct. So, put on tender mercies, that is, compassion and empathy for one another. And put on kindness. Don't be rude. Be kind. I love Mark Twain's quote. He said of an acquaintance, he was a good man in the worst sort of way. You ever met anybody like that? In other words, a person can be moral and religious and at the same time be hypocritical and harsh and rude. Hey, let's be both good and loving at the same time. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, and meekness, which is strength under control. This is what makes you a gracious winner. See, meekness doesn't rub it in. The other day on the golf course, man, I was beating Pastor James like a drum. (laughs) But you know, I didn't say a word to him about it. He's not in here right now, so don't you whisper a thing to him that I said anything about it. I was meek, man. I held it in. 
I kept it back. See, the meek person is not the player who gets penalized 15 yards for excessive celebration. Meekness never taunts. Its goal is to win the person, not just the game. And put on long-suffering. That is patience. You know, it's been said patience is the virtue you admire in the driver behind you and despise in the driver ahead of you. (laughs) For us, patience is the ability to wait on God to move. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We should treat others just as Jesus treats us. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Oh, when a Christian dresses in love, he becomes a good man in the best sort of way. Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now the Greek word here translated rule related to a judge in an athletic competition. We would call him the umpire. And Paul is saying that when a life decision is too close to call, when it's a bang-bang choice, so so to speak, let the peace of God make the call. If you're facing a situation, and it's biblical, and it seems godly to you, then you're safe. Go for it. But if you're uneasy about it, even if you can't put, quite put your finger on what it is that makes you uneasy, then out of it, punch it out. Let the peace of God call the bang-bang choices. The problem, though, with the peace approach to learning God's will is its subjectivity. See, at times our hearts can be deceived. So along with God's peace, umpiring our hearts, we also need the advice in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Say a guy comes up to me and he says, you know, Pastor Sandy, I've been praying for some time now and God has finally given me a peace about divorcing my old lady. Wait a minute. Your piece is a piece of garbage. It's a deception. It's a work of the devil. God isn't going to give you a piece to do what's forbidden in his word. God never contradicts his word. That's why the word of Christ should dwell in us richly. Go through the word. Let the word go through you. Let God's word dwell in you richly and fully and comprehensively. Let it alter your attitudes and shape your values and challenge your assumptions and change your perspectives. Hold fast to God's word. For Paul adds, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Hey, look for the peace of God. Learn from the word of God. Sing the praises of God and you'll be living right smack dab. In the will of God. For verse 17 tells us, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Notice, in word or deed. That's an all-encompassing ethic right there. We should run every thought, desire, attitude, comment, action, even reaction through the filter. What would Jesus do? 
What will bring him glory in this situation? Now, as we said at the outset, the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. And in the next few verses, Paul describes how a heavenly perspective will affect human relationships. He begins in verse 18, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, as we've said many times, biblical marriage is an ordered equality. The man and the woman are equal in value, but distinct in the roles that God assigns to each. God calls the woman to submit or to arrange her life around the man, and he calls the man to be her loving leader. This is wisdom from above. This is a heavenly mindset, he says. Now, of course, this never means that a husband should dominate his wife. Married couples should complement each other. Marriage is a dance. It's like a tango. The husband takes the lead, but he doesn't step on his wife's toes. He doesn't do her harm. No, they move together as one. And notice here the two exceptions to the wife's submission. First, a wife submits to her own husband, not to husbands in general. You don't want that burden, ladies. Now, biblical submission is a role she plays in the context of her marriage and the church, not in her interactions with society at large. In government or in business, a woman is free to take positions of authority. And then second, she's to submit as is fitting in the Lord. She's under no obligation to obey her husband if his demand is immoral or illegal or unbiblical. A wife's primary obligation is to obey God. That's why she submits to her husband. And she's forced to choose, if she's ever forced to choose between God and her husband, then she sides with God. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. See, a husband's job is to take the initiative. The husband leads and loves like Jesus And how did our Lord love us? Well, Jesus loved us by dying in our place. And this is what a husband does. He takes responsibility for what's not his fault. That's what he did when he bore our sin on the cross. And this is what a husband does when he loves like Jesus. He takes responsibility for things in life that are not his fault. He covers his wife and his kids. And this means he can't get bitter. For if he focuses on how he's been harmed or what's not his fault, it's not my fault, then it grinds the initiative of love to a stop. Well, I'm not apologizing until she apologizes. That's bitterness, not love. And bitterness will always turn wedlock into a deadlock. As the leader in his home, the husband's job is to prevent deadlocks. The man needs to be the adult in the room. The guy who keeps his emotions out of it. The guy who looks past her faults. Who bears with her faults. Who keeps his eye on her healing, not on your one-uppance. The husband needs to keep open lines of communication. 
Jesus showed grace, husband, and so should you. Men are about initiative, not bitterness. And then he says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now notice here the reciprocal responsibility of the Christian ethic. In the Jewish and Roman worlds, a child's obedience was nothing new. That was expected. But for the parents to avoid needlessly frustrating and discouraging their children, this was revolutionary. That parents too had a duty. See, Roman domestic law was based on the principle of patria potestas, or the power of the father. A Roman dad could do whatever he wanted with his kids. He could sell them. He could kill them. He could enslave them. They were considered his property to do with as he pleased. You know, some of you were rebellious teenagers. And you should be really thankful you grew up in the Christian era. <laughs> rather than in ancient Rome. There ain't no telling what would be where you'd be today. In Christianity, parents are to love their children. And kids are to obey their parents. Hey, your parents are smarter than you think. (laughs) And they most likely care for you. Christian kids need to obey their parents and Christian parents need to love their kids. And this reciprocal responsibility carries over into the workplace. Notice verse 22. Bond servants, that is, in our context, employees. Obey in all things your employers or your masters. According to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And we've all seen this eye service before. Uh, we, we get real busy until the boss, or, or we're sloughing off, I'm sorry. We're sloughing off. We're taking it easy until the boss walks in the room. And then all of a sudden, Oh, I'm, I'm busy, man. I got, got stuff to do, things to take care of here. What, what is that? That's eye service as men pleasers. Yet as a Christian, our boss is always watching. For when we go to work, we aren't working for the company. We're working for the Lord. How we do our job is a big part of our witness. Paul writes, for whatever you do, do it heartily. As to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Right now an earthly boss signs your check, but the paycheck that really counts, your eternal reward will be signed by God. Again, what we think of the next life determines how we live this one. Once a businessman, he saw Mother Teresa. She was washing the open sores and bandaging the pus-filled wounds of the sick there in Calcutta. He saw her and he shook his head and he said, Oh, I I could never do that. I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. Mother Teresa replied, Neither would I. She wasn't looking for an earthly reward as much as she was after an eternal reward from God. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. God is just. He's going to be fair. 
both with his paychecks and with his punishment. And then chapter 4 tells us, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Every boss on earth needs to know he has a boss in heaven. And remember, you who are bosses, your boss wasn't bossy. Jesus was a servant. He lived humbly. He refused to throw his weight around or bully other people. He respected people. And this is how a Christian employer should behave. He should love and serve his employees. If you're a boss and you complain about a lack of loyalty from your employees, then you should ask yourself if you've given them a reason to be loyal. Treat them as you would want to be treated and see if they don't work harder for you. And then he says in verse 2, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Don't just pray once and give up on it. No, persevere. Continue passionately in your prayers. And Paul says that while you're praying, verse 3, hey, pray also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Paul recalls that he's in prison. And as you might expect, being in prison, he requests prayer. But rather than pray for him to get out, he asks the Colossians to pray that the word of God would get out. Paul wasn't occupied with himself. He was occupied with the advancement of the gospel. And then he adds in verse 4, And that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. He doesn't desire charity. He wants clarity. He wants to be effective in his witness and speak the word of God clearly and straightforward. Hey, if you pray for me, I would like for you to pray that prayer. And then in verse 5 he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Do you know that somewhere right now there is a clock ticking? It's posting the days and the hours and the minutes and the seconds left until you die and meet God. How sobering would it be if we got a glimpse of that clock and the time we have left? How would it change the way we live our lives? Surely we would want to gather up every stray second and redeem the time. We'd want to make every minute count. And we would want to make every word that comes out of our mouth count. And that's what he addresses in verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech Be with grace, seasoned with salt. You know, for some of you guys, before you became a Christian, you'd walk in and you'd belly up to the bar. And whenever you went to the bar, did you notice the pretzels and the peanuts on the bar? You thought the bartender was just being nice. No, not so. Bars know that salt makes you thirsty. So they keep you munching pretzels and peanuts so that you'll keep buying drinks and keep spending your money. And it's this thirst-producing quality of salt that should characterize our speech, our conversations. Did you know that as a Christian, I can sprinkle into any conversation a biblical truth, a spiritual thought, a 
godly statement, even praises to God. In natural ways, I can bring salty speech, God-honoring speech into what I'm saying, into my conversations. I can help people realize that Jesus is active in my life and he can be in theirs. We want to make folks thirsty for Christ. Well, Paul closes his letter to the Colossians with some personal correspondence in the remaining verses. Realize Paul was not only a great soul winner, he was also a great friend maker. You know, I love the, the statement, I went out to find a friend, but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. Paul had friends because he was such a good friend to have. Here he takes time out to communicate with his friends. And beginning in verse 7, Paul addresses his pals. He says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. A friend of Paul named Tychicus had delivered this letter to the Colossians. He ministered to the church there, and he reported back to Paul. And he came with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Onesimus, another Colossian, had tagged along. We're going to learn more about Onesimus in Paul's letter to Philemon. And then he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And this is a wonderful gesture. You should understand the background here. In Acts chapter 15, after their first missionary endeavor to Galatia, Paul and Barnabas parted company. They had a split. An apostolic split. And the church was aghast. How could this happen to godly men? But it was caused over their disagreement over Barnabas' cousin Mark. For some reason, on their first missionary venture, Mark had abandoned them in midstream. So when they started planning a second tour, Paul barked, bleh, balked at bringing, he barked, probably barked too. But he barked and balked at bringing Mark again. As it turned out, Paul replaced Barnabas with Silas. And Barnabas ended up teaming up with Mark. And it wasn't the last time hard feelings have broken up church leaders. Yet here, years later, it's amazing that Paul writes to the Colossians and he mentions that Mark is with him. Whatever ill feelings had existed have now been resolved. Mark and Paul have been reunited in Rome and Mark sends his greetings. In fact, Paul's going to later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. And he's going to say of Mark, he is useful to me for ministry. You know, it's comforting to me to know that Paul and Mark were not so spiritual that they never had a blow up or a fallout. And it's equally comforting to know that they were spiritual enough to get over it, to forgive each other, and to be reunited. Also with Paul was Jesus, who is called Justice. The surname Jesus was actually a common Jewish name in the first century. This is why the Gospels refer to the Messiah as Jesus of Nazareth. It differentiated God's Son from the other Jesuses, like this one, called Justice. 
Also interesting is that Paul, a Jewish rabbi, had just three Jewish friends stand with him to the end. He says of Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision or Jewish. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Then he says in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, he was a Colossian, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you. Remember, Epaphras was the leader of the church at Colossae. He was a caring pastor who rushed to Paul with news of the heresy that was brewing in this church. And he had been praying for the Colossians. Notice how Paul describes his prayer life. Always laboring fervently. Let me ask you, when was the last time you labored in prayer? Really worked at it? Have you ever prayed yourself into a lather? I mean, passionately interceding for someone? Epaphras did. He prayed for the Colossians and two sister churches in neighboring cities and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. And then he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Here we learn that Luke was not only a historian, but he was a doctor. He was the author of the third gospel and of Acts, but he was also a medical doctor. Perhaps he was Paul's personal physician. You know, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he spoke of a reoccurring eye problem that tormented him. Luke may have traveled with Paul to treat him whenever the illness flared up. A man also, Paul here also mentions a man named Demas. Sadly, we're going to learn later that when the going got rough, Demas got going. He abandoned Paul and the cause of Christ. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Paul explains Demas' sad end. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And then verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Note the church in Laodicea met in a house. In fact, our church began in a house 40-something years ago. Began in our living room. Did you know that until the 3rd century A.D., all churches met in homes? No churches met in designated buildings? For the first 300 years of church history, Christians fellowshiped in homes. And it was probably the greatest expansion in all of our history. Well, Nymphus here was either the pastor or the host of the church in Laodicea. Perhaps he was both. Later in Revelation 3, Jesus himself has a stern warning for the Laodiceans. They were the church who conformed to the world. Neither hot nor cold, the Laodiceans were room temperature. And the Lord spit them out of his mouth. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. In other words, Paul wanted these letters to be exchanged from church to church. Isn't it interesting, 2,000 years later, we're fulfilling Paul's wishes? Here, the church in Lilburn is reading the letter Paul wrote to the Colossians. The New Testament was meant to be applied universally to all churches at all times. Here the Laodiceans are encouraged to read the letter to Colossae 
and the Colossians are to read the letter to the Laodiceans, which brings up a question. Where is Paul's letter to Laodicea? And the answer, buried under the sands of time. We no longer possess it. Verse 17, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. And we'll also meet Archippus again with Onesimus when we study Paul's letter to Philemon. This salutation by my own hand and his signature, Paul. Now, it was Paul's custom to dictate his letters to a stenographer. And then to authenticate the finished letter, he would sign his signature. But this time, as he reaches for the quill to sign his name, the metal restraints on his wrist begin to jangle. He feels their weight and their encumbrance. And it reminds him of his imprisonment for the cause of Christ and for these Colossians. And so Paul closes his letter with a heartfelt request. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have Paul's letter to the Colossians.